said, and especially that last song, Blessed Assurance. You know, I remember singing songs like that whenever I was younger and, you know, didn't really think a whole lot about them. But as you grow older and you begin to sing those songs, they begin to have more meaning to you. And, uh, and as, especially as you grow in your understanding and in your security in the Lord, that, uh, you know, we praise our Savior all day long and, and we look forward to and anticipate the day that our Lord will come. And, uh, cause I don't know about you, but I'm getting tired of living in this world. I'm getting tired of, you know, just all the stuff that goes on in the world. You turn on the news and you see the things that happen around the world. You go through your daily grind. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer. God is blessing me and I'm sure He's blessing you tremendously. But there's going to be no place like home. And so we look forward whenever the Lord comes and whenever we can be together around God's throne and, and be there and know one another, not just as husband and wife and son and daughter, but know one another as fellow redeemed, standing there in the in the presence of God around His throne singing and praising Him. And, uh, and so hopefully as we grow in our assurance, it, it, it creates a greater anticipation for that time. And I think that that's essential for a Christian to have something to look forward to. Because, you know, whenever you get discouraged, you always need something to look forward to, something to give you hope, something to cause you to continue to press on and persevere. And when you're insecure, you don't have that hope and you don't have that to look forward to, and that just amplifies the problems and the troubles that we go through in life. But to know that we're secure and to know that in whatever situation in life that we may find ourselves, as the old songwriter said, it is well with my soul because I have a Redeemer and I have a salvation and I have a faith, I have a confidence, I have a blessed assurance. So whatever comes my way, I can face it with the, the joy in my heart and knowing that God loves me and that God wants me to be saved. And that's what we're going to talk about a little while this afternoon. And that is, do you know that God wants you to be saved? Do you know that God cares about you? And that God, as He sits and reigns in heaven today and He looks down upon us, He's not apathetic towards your spiritual condition. It's not like, well, if Jay makes it, fine. If he don't, fine. No, God wants Jay to be saved. And God wants you to be saved also. And God has demonstrated that desire for you to be saved. You know, and so we need to understand that God is on our side. You know, as we, we talked about this morning, and, uh, you know, as Paul will write later on in the book of Proverbs, if God be, or in the book of Romans, if God be for us, who can be against us? Well, we've got to be sure, first of all, that God's for us. And God has demonstrated that He is for us. And so this afternoon, for just a little bit, we're going to talk about much more. That's a statement that occurs throughout the book of our chapter 5 in the book of Romans. And we want to highlight that. And we want to look at and understand what God has done for us, what God is doing for us, and just how much God wants us to be saved. So that as we live our life, that we don't go through life with the idea, well, I'm going to scarcely be saved. That if I'm saved, I'm just going to be saved by a thread. I'm just going to be saved by a fingernail. No, God wants you to be saved, and He wants me to be saved, and He wants us to be saved abundantly. That an, that an entrance shall be given to us, an abundant entrance, that we can enter into heaven, and that we can go in with confidence and knowing that the Lord is on our side. In verse number 1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's a declarative statement. That's a statement of declaration that we are justified. Say to yourself right now, I am justified in Jesus Christ. I am right with God. If we're hesitant in making that statement, then we're not fully appreciating the work that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. After the Apostle Paul goes through chapter 3 and chapter 4, he begins this part of the book by saying, having been justified by faith. That's speaking of an act accomplished. Having been justified. If you're a Christian, if you've been baptized, if you've been washed in the blood of the Lord, you have been justified. You have been made right with God. And I have been made right with God. And we have to have that confidence and that assurance that I'm right with God because of the work that Jesus did upon the cross. And because we've been justified, we have peace with God. The word peace there means a relational peace. In other words, I'm not God's enemy anymore. God's not against me. But rather, we have peace. We have a peaceful relationship. And that peaceful relationship comes from our relationship that we have together through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Paul here makes a very bold statement. And he makes a statement that's unapologetic. And he makes a statement that he's not qualifying. He doesn't say, if you're justified. And he didn't say, if so happen to be that you are justified. He says, we are justified. He's talking to a group of Christians. He's talking to a group of redeemed people. If Paul was standing in this pulpit this afternoon and he looked out at you, he'd say the same thing. Therefore, being justified, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. We're right with God right now because of our place in Jesus Christ. And that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. A rejoiceful, we rejoice in hope. Again, if you're an insecure person, you don't rejoice. Whenever you sing a song just like we got through singing right here, we're singing it, but we're not meaning it because we're not really sure. But rather, a heart that is full of hope is a heart that will rejoice in the Lord. And we lament sometimes how how we almost become expressionless in our worship. That we don't manifest any joy. And that is a symptom of not having any security in the heart. Of not having any hope. (coughs) If you want to rejoice for something, you've got to have something to hope for. And so the Apostle Paul here in making this statement, shows to us the connection between rejoicing and hope and security. And we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. As we talked about this morning, we stand in grace. That's our security. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talked about the gospel, how that they stood in the gospel. And what we need to understand is that the gospel is not a first principle. You know, we, whenever we think about, well, we need to go, you know, we need to leave the first principles and we need to go on to other things. And, and uh, you know, people will talk about when they hear the gospel, well, all we hear are first principles. We need to understand the gospel is not a first principle. The gospel is the only principle. It's the principle that we stand in. It's the grace that we stand in. So whether I'm a day out of the baptismal waters or I'm 50 years out of the baptismal waters, I still should be standing in that same grace and in that same gospel the entirety of my life. Because that's where my hope is. And in standing in that hope, then I have cause and I have reason to rejoice. 
But the Apostle Paul talked about a group of people who were removed from the Gospel. And we get removed from the Gospel. As we grow older in the faith and we fight all of these doctrinal battles and all of these issues and we go through all of this stuff, it takes our focus and our attention off the grace and the Gospel that we first stood in to all of this other stuff. Not to say that doctrine and issues and things aren't important. They are important. But they're not the confidence of my salvation. And they're not the confidence of your salvation. It's grace in the gospel. And if you look to stand, and if I look to stand in anything other than that, it's only going to breed insecurity in my heart and in your heart. And so because of this, we can glory in tribulation. Tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. In other words, if I have security and I have confidence, I can endure. Not only can I endure these things, but they can develop me spiritually. That I can grow through them. That the tribulations produce perseverance and perseverance strengthens my character. And as my character grows stronger, my hope grows sure. And my hope does not disappoint. I'm not ashamed of my hope. I'm not ashamed of my hope being in Jesus Christ. And in every situation that I'm in, whatever difficulty, whatever tribulation, I'm going to hold on to my hope in Jesus Christ. Though the world may strip everything from me, and I cling to my hope, other people may look at that and just say, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. That's nonsensical. But I'm not going to feel that way. And you're not going to feel that way. We're not going to be ashamed because our confidence and our hope is directly tied to our Lord. So we're willing to suffer the loss of everything. Because, as he says, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know, in Acts 2.38, we were told to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Lord gives us a gift. The Lord gives us assurance in the form of His Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 and verse 13, "...in Him ye also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory." God's love is shed abroad in our heart in the form of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit, as Paul says here, is a seal. What's a seal for? A seal is anything which has been fastened up or marked for security and authority. You see, the Lord gives us of His Holy Spirit. And the presence of His Holy Spirit within us is to give us... Security, Just like you would take an envelope with a document in it and you would close it and then you would seal it for security. A seal is an emblem of security. And so whenever we look at our understanding of the Holy Spirit being received by us upon our conversion, that's the Lord giving us a sense of security. As if to say, here's a little bit of heaven until you get here. As he goes on to say, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Guarantee, or in the King James Version, it says the earnest of our inheritance. What's earnest money for? Earnest money is for security. Whenever you go to buy a house and someone agrees to buy the house, they'll give you earnest money as a pledge to make you feel secure in the decision that they've made to buy that house. It's all about security. So upon our conversion to the Lord, whenever we receive the Holy Spirit, when He's shed abroad in our hearts... 
What we're receiving from the Lord is security. And by understanding that truth, but if we want to argue the fact of God's Spirit being within us, if we want to argue the fact of the operation of the Lord's Holy Spirit in our life, what we're wanting to argue against is the security that He's giving to us as believers. As He says here, it's given to us... If I can find... Whoops, that wasn't it. As a guarantee for our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession... And so we have security from God. We have security from God not only in the promises that God gives to us, but we have security from God in the form of His Spirit that He's blessed us with that dwells within us. And so Paul continues to say in verse number 6, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. So here the Apostle Paul has begun to make the argument to help us to understand just how much God wants you to be saved and He wants me to be saved. Paul not only identifies the fact that Christ died for us, which is, an ama- which is amazing in and of itself, but he also notes our condition when Christ died to help us better understand and appreciate the death of Jesus. For when we were still without strength, whenever we were without strength, whenever we were dead, whenever we were hopeless, God did not wait for us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and clean ourselves up a little bit before Christ died for us. In other words, God gave Christ when we were at our worst. Doesn't that tell you something about how much God wants us to be saved? That even when we were without strength, whenever we had no hope, whenever we gave no concern about God, He still offered Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. And that's a security to you and me. Whenever we get over into Romans chapter 8, Paul is going to use that argument again as if to say, if He did this for us whenever we were sinners, what's He not going to do for us? in order for us to be saved. Do you not think God is on your side? This is a testament here to the fact that God is on our side, so much so that even whenever we were without strength, whenever we were dead in sin, He was still working His plan and making His provision for Jay to be saved and for you to be saved. He goes on to say, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. Now we could understand dying for a righteous man or a good man. There's people that do that. There's people that will give their lives for someone. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were yet sinners... And so that demonstrates God's love even more. In the King James Version, I think think it says, God commended His love towards us. To commend, to demonstrate, means to represent it as worthy. To distinguish it from other types of love. It's not that just that Christ died for us. There's another part of the story. Christ died for us while we were sinners. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Don't you know that God wants you to be saved? If God did this while I was a sinner, then can I have that much more confidence in knowing that God's going to save me from His wrath? God didn't do all of that to save me from my sin, to put me on a short leash, so to speak. 
and to put me in a position of angst and insecurity and, and frustration and all of that. But God wants me to look at this and to know I can have that much more confidence in knowing that if He did that for me while I was a sinner, what's He not going to do for me now that I'm one of His children? And you're sitting there thinking, boy, you're making it sound as if it's almost impossible to be lost. <laughs> and that's what we want. That's the effect that we want to have. Because that's security. That's security. We're not saying that, it's impo- that, it's, that it is impossible, but we're saying that whenever we are in the hand of God, whenever we are in the protection and under the wing of God, as the Scriptures say, no man can pluck us from Him. No man can take us away. We can have confidence and we can have security. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 5 and 9, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't appoint us to wrath. He didn't save us and then appoint us to wrath. Or He didn't save us for us then to try to work ourselves to heaven. He appointed us to obtain salvation. That's what God is all about when it comes to you and me. He's about our salvation. He's on our side. He wants us to be confident in our relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. Verse number 10, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. There's the statement again, much more. And notice what he says, When we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. God is doing all of that for us while we were His enemies. And so Paul's conclusion is, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. That after our Lord's resurrection from the grave, that He sits and He reigns in heaven today as a faithful high priest, and He works on our behalf in order to see to it that we can be saved from wrath. That we can have confidence. And our confidence is based on everything that He did for us while we were sinners. But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we now have received the reconciliation. There again, we rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoicing is a product of security. It's a product of firm belief in the salvation, in the hope, in the reconciliation that we have from the Lord. And if we come in this building and we sit in a pew and we sit there with insecurity, you know, David said, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation that I may be able to teach others also. You know, we, we lament sometimes about the lack of evangelism. Well, why aren't we telling people more about the Lord? Well, it's probably because... We're not secure in it in ourselves. That we're not sure about it ourselves. And if we're not completely sold on it, how are we going to go sell anybody else on it? But if we understand with confidence the reconciliation that we have with God through Christ Jesus, and we firmly believe it, we're going to be like the Apostle Paul. I believe, therefore I speak. I believe, therefore I speak. But if I don't truly believe, if I don't truly have confidence, if I don't truly have security... I'm not going to speak. I may mumble every now and then. I may throw out an idea or a suggestion every now and then. But so far as talking with a certainty, 
If I don't have that security, I can't speak with a certainty. And if I can't speak with a certainty, I can't be influential in the lives of those that are lost around me. A confident people, a secure people, are an evangelizing people and a people that will affect those that are around them. Verses 12, beginning in verse number 12. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. I'm just going to put a diagram up here to try to illustrate what Paul is talking about in these next few verses because it is Sunday afternoon and we just got through eating lunch. And going through some of those verses is going to be kind of tedious. But what I want us to understand is this this message. The Apostle Paul talks about Adam and that through Adam's disobedience, sin came about and sin resulted in death. The Bible tells us that by one man's offense, many were made sinners. You were made a sinner. I was made a sinner. The whole world is made sinners because of the offense of Adam. That whenever Adam sinned in the garden... Sin entered into the world. That sin passed over everything. And that we sin because we're sinners. Because of the sin of Adam. And so whenever we look at us becoming sinners, we are sinners because of the action of one man, Adam. Now that doesn't mean that we receive the guilt of Adam's sin, but we receive the nature of Adam in that we sin, as we'll talk about in Romans chapter 7, sin in the flesh. And because of that sin in the flesh, we become sinners. And what do sinners do? Sinners sin. So we were made sinners by the offense of Adam. But then he goes on to talk about Christ, how that by the obedience of Christ, that we are made righteous, and then righteousness leads to eternal life. And so the illustration that he's using here is, is that because of the action of one man, this was the consequence of it. By the actions of Jesus Christ, this is the consequence of it. That just like in Adam we were made sinners living under the penalty of death, in Christ Jesus we are made righteous and that righteousness reigns unto eternal life. And so as we look to Adam as the consequence for sin and death, we look to Christ as the originator of righteousness in life. That whenever we're concerned about righteousness, that whenever we're concerned about life, that we turn to the one who is the head of our spiritual family, even in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul said, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. That just like Adam is our representative head in the, in the fleshly sense where we experience sin and death, Christ is our representative head in the spiritual sense whereby we are ascribed righteousness in life. And so then in making that argument, he says in verse number 18, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many shall be made righteous. And we illustrate here and we emphasize the statement being made. So by Adam's offense, many were made sinners. We received our sin nature from Adam because of the offense of Adam. We were made sinners. But in Christ Jesus, by His obedience, we received the divine nature through Jesus Christ being made righteous. 
So where does our security, where does our hope, where does our life come? Our life comes from Jesus Christ, and so therein is where our hope should be placed. And so then he concludes in verse number 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. So now he's going back to the law. Where, Where does the law fit into all of this? The law came that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to teach us our need for grace. As we read about this morning, for by law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul said, I wouldn't have known covetousness except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And that's what law does. Law makes us aware of our hopelessness. Law makes us aware of our sin. And law is that tutor that brings us unto Christ to receive what it is that we really need and which gives us our confidence and our hope. And that is the grace that might abound. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Everywhere there is sin, grace abounds. Everywhere there's sin, grace abounds. God always provides the provisions to give us the victory over sin and death. And so He illustrates through the law man's sinfulness And then through Jesus Christ, He illustrates that grace which brings about victory over sin and death. Which victory you and I are partakers in today if our faith and our hope and our belief is in Christ Jesus. And so what we've tried to do today is put a central focus on Christ as our security. To look to the cross of Jesus Christ for our security. And to understand that that's where our hope and our security is. And if we look anywhere else, that's what breeds the insecurity and the frustration and the anxiousness that we have. And as Matt said this morning, you know, you you preach this and it sounds like, you know, it's just all about belief and everything is a free-for-all. And you know, that's exactly what the people that Paul was writing to, they entertained those thoughts and ideas. And in the next section, Michael will pick this up and he'll begin with verse number 1 of chapter 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And you know, and that's a natural conclusion whenever you hear about security in Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul addressed it. And it's going to be addressed next week. But what we want to focus on today is the idea that our salvation, our hope, our righteousness, our security, our confidence comes from Jesus Christ and the cross. We've got to get oriented to that. You know, and again, sometimes as we were discussing, you... you You teach that, but you want to teach it in a way that there's no misunderstandings about something else. But sometimes you can teach something in a way so that there's no misunderstandings about something else that you don't really properly understand what you wanted to teach in the first place. And what we've tried to do is just to try to teach boldly and plainly. It's Jesus Christ. That that big hand from God is reaching down and He's pointing to the cross. He's not pointing to a law. He's pointing to the cross. That's my righteousness. And so if Christ is pointing to that, or if God is pointing to that as a demonstration of His righteousness, then every one of us in here need to be looking at that for the security and for the hope of our righteousness. If you're a Christian, you're right with God. You're right with God right now. 
And you're sitting there thinking, well, you don't know me. Well, Paul didn't know the people he was writing to either. And he said, therefore, being justified by grace, being justified by faith, being justified. We have to understand that that precept, accept that truth, accept that truth about ourselves and understand that that's a statement from God and understand that God can call things that aren't as though they were. And so we may be sitting there thinking, well, boy, I don't feel very righteous. That's fine. God calls you that. And He calls you that not because of your power, but because of His power. That when God looks at you and looks at me and calls you righteous, He doesn't look at Jay and call Jay righteous. He looks at Jay through Jesus Christ and calls Jay righteous. That when God looks at you as righteous, He's looking at you through Jesus Christ. And so understand that and have that faith, have that hope, and have that rejoicing in your heart. If you're here this afternoon and not a Christian, again, as we talked about this morning, this is your hope right here. You can never be good enough. And if you are here this afternoon and you look at yourself and you think, I'm so terrible, God could never save me, you've got to understand that you're not that bad enough either. That God has made provision through Jesus Christ for the salvation of all men everywhere through the blood of Jesus Christ, regardless of how you see yourself. If you're not in Christ, you're estranged from God. Whether you've only committed one sin or you've committed one million sins, you're still separated from God. And God requires that you come to Christ and be washed in His blood, having your sins taken away, having the price paid, and then having confidence that I'm a child of God. From that day forward, standing in the grace and standing in the gospel and allowing that to be your hope. Or if you are here and you are a Christian and have a spiritual matter to bring to the attention of the congregation, would ask you to come now as we stand and sing.